Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is sponsored by Truman Audio, makers of the Answer preamp, which you can get as a kit or as a pre-installed option on an SM7B. So make sure you check out trumanaudio.com and use promo code RL10, that's RL10, number 10, for 10% off at checkout on your entire order. So whether you're getting an answer kit to install in your SM7B or SM7, or you're getting a brand new SM7B with the kit pre-installed, then you can get 10% off at trumanaudio.com. That's T-R-U-M-A-N-A-U-D-I-O.com. So thanks again to Truman Audio for sponsoring this episode. Let's get into it. Okay, so today's episode is all about working with drum samples. I've had a lot of requests over the years to do this episode talking about where do you get your drum samples? How do you work with them? Do you put them on an aux or do you put it on the track? You know, all the considerations with drum samples. Now, some people out there think that drum samples are only useful for pop or metal or hip hop. But honestly, these days, nothing could be further from the truth. Drum samples can be used and are being used in basically any genre that you can imagine. And they have been for decades. Thankfully, with modern tools and techniques, we've gotten a lot better at using drum samples. And with a little care and attention, you can make them work for you and not sound phony or mechanical or synthetic. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about using drum programming software like... Logic Drummer or Easy Drummer or something like that. I'm talking about the use of individual drum samples to augment or enhance or replace an existing acoustic drum recording. Someday I plan on doing an episode about working with program drums, but that's for another time. So I've been using drum samples to augment drum recordings for probably about 10 years. And even if they're super subtle in the mix, they can really go a long way to helping your drums achieve the vibe depth and impact that you want. So today I want to talk about some of the reasons for doing this, some tips on how to best incorporate drum samples into your workflow, and some examples, some audio examples to illustrate some of these points. So let's get started. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is why do we use drum samples or why might you use drum samples? If you've been a fan of this show, you might be saying, you know, Kendall, aren't you always preaching about how the source is king? Why would you be advocating for drum samples? Well, to me, those two things are not mutually exclusive. I do believe the source is king, but I also believe that drum samples are an amazing tool for augmenting or enhancing a drum recording. And they're even a creative device that you can use to make your drum recording more interesting. And funny enough, I would actually argue that most of the time, a drum sample is closer to being a source than, for example, a reverb plugin, which is simulating a space with math, essentially. <laughs> uh, at least a drum sample is a real recording, right, of something that existed, you know? Like, maybe it's from a drum machine, but it's very often from an acoustic snare in a room with mics and it's being played back. You know, a, a reverb plugin isn't even, quote, real. So I don't think drum samples are necessarily going to inherently sound fake. I don't believe they're always a crutch. So let me give you a few examples of why or when I might use drum samples to illustrate this. Reason number one. I want to add more room sound to my kick, snare, or toms, and I wasn't able to record in a room that had that sound. 
Now, this is one of the most common ways for me to use drum samples is I won't necessarily use close mic'd samples of snares or kicks or whatever, but I will use more roomy samples recorded in larger studios or halls or interesting spaces, right? And I will blend that in instead of using a reverb. And it can be great because it's generally fairly subtle. You probably won't notice that it's a sample or a reverb. You'll just hear it as sounding like space, right? And it often sounds much better than putting a reverb on a close mic'd kick or snare. Now, if you've been a fan of the podcast for a while, then you know that I'm a big advocate of putting reverb plugins on room mics rather than close mics. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Anyway, so putting samples on drums is one of the coolest ways to add reverb because you get a clean, real recording of a room that sounds great. You can manipulate it independently of the live snare because there's no bleed. There's nothing like that. You don't have to heavily gate your live snare if you don't want to, which you sometimes have to do on reverbs. And you can get a nice, super clean decay on your snare or kick or whatever and blend it in. This is probably... 50% of the reason that I would use a drum sample to get more room sound. Reason number two, when I want more ring or length out of the drums, but I wasn't able to tune the drums to get that sound due to limited drums available, due to the drummer's comfort when playing, due to a number of other factors. For example, I have a large 28-inch bass drum here at the studio, and it's awesome. It's got that John Bonham thing. It's you, you play it, and it just sounds like God's kick drum. You know, it's amazing. However, because it is so large, if the drummer plays with two rack toms or even just a really deep you know, rack tom, this drum is too large to fit those toms above it comfortably, right? And I don't want to sacrifice their ability to play the drums well. So I might use a smaller kick drum with a similar sound, but not quite as big and full sounding as the 28. And then I will blend in with a sample to augment that kick drum and make it sound more like the 28 inch kick. Another example of this would be, let's say I've got a drummer who's playing a pretty ringy snare drum, but they don't hit consistently enough to get a super consistent ring out of the drum and or they hit hard enough where the drum is kind of going boom, like the pitch is kind of doing that laser thing and it's really annoying or the pitch keeps dropping over the course of the entire song and I cannot seem to keep it in tune because they're hitting so hard. It might actually be worth it to dampen that snare a little bit more so that you're, you're not really getting much live ring and then add a sample that has ring later that is more consistent and is going to sound better throughout the entire song. You can still get the basic tonality and pitch of the snare, but you don't have to mess with the ring uh, and constantly be checking it after every single punch, after every single take. Even if you're putting lug locks on and other things to try to get the snare to stay in tune, some drummers just hit so hard, it will be out of tune within a minute. You know, and if you're really trying to go for that, like this ring is a part of the snare sound, it's really important and it's in key and it sounds pleasing and all of that stuff like that can be really, really hard with certain drummers and certain snares. So blending in a sample with a very consistent, controllable, you know, malleable ring can really go a long way to making this work. You can even record the actual snare that you're using for the session, tune it how you want it, get a sample of it, and then dampen it up and record the live drums and blend in your exact snare, the same snare that you're using, just blend it in with the dampened snare. Reason number three for using drum samples 
when there's too much bleed on the drums and I need to blend in a clean sample of the close mics to help isolate them better. So this is a really common problem because especially on things like toms or snare, there can be a lot of cymbal bleed. And unfortunately, the cymbal bleed on these types of close mics doesn't sound that great. You know, it's not like a pleasing kind of bleed. We're generally using dynamics with really tight patterns. And although they do pick up mostly what's in front of them, unfortunately, their off-axis response is not super pleasing. So even though there are a handful of great techniques for getting out bleed and plugins for getting out bleed, sometimes it just sounds better to blend in a sample or edit in samples on particular drum fills or on Tom Hits or whatever to help, on average, reduce the amount of bleed. This is especially effective when the samples are made from the close mics of the session that you're currently working on, right? So it's one reason for getting samples when you're setting up for drums. You set up your drums, you tune them, you mic them up, you get the sounds how you want them, and then you take some samples, just a couple per. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But then you have at least some hits that you can do some cool tricks with. And so blending in samples for reducing bleed on average is another great technique for using samples. Reason number four why I might want to use drum samples. When I want to change the character of the drums, but I don't necessarily want to impact the raw sounds. For example, if I want a dirty, crunchy kick drum sound, but doing so would require me to distort or saturate my live kick, which then might bring up a lot of bleed or ugly, you know, ringing and other nonsense, which then would make me gate it heavily, which then would lose all the length and sustain of my kick. It, it just kind of keeps going back and forth. Instead, I could just blend in a crunchy kick drum sample in parallel and I can do whatever I want to it. I can run it through the craziest pedals that I want. I can, you know, make it insanely distorted and manipulate it and then just blend it in. Problem solved. I don't have to worry about any of the other stuff because it's totally isolated from the live sound. So that's a great way to change the character on kick or toms or snare or really anything. Reason number five, to help even out a drum performance for a drummer who has a problem hitting consistently. Uh, this is common in rock and metal where it's basically expected that the kick and the snare will be like in your face and perfect and hard hitting and impactful every single hit. And it's incredibly difficult, especially in metal, for example, to play really fast double kick patterns at one constant volume for three, four minute songs. You know what I mean? That's incredibly difficult. I would say only a small percentage of drummers can really do it. You know, the professional drummers who have been doing it for two, three decades uh, and basically have ripped leg muscles. <laughs> uh, but by blending in a one shot or a single velocity sample of the kick drum or snare or whatever, you're effectively averaging out all of the inconsistencies in the kick drum volume. Now, again, you can replace if you want or you can just blend it in. Regardless, it is evening out the volumes of all of those kicks on average. And again, we do have amazing tools for this. One of my favorite plugins for evening out drum performances is Drum Leveler by Soundradix. It's amazing, but again, as all of you know, just because something is the same volume, it's not the same as playing it the same volume, right? Like guitars, drums, any instrument on the planet sounds different when you play it at different volumes, right? When you play a kick drum really quiet, it sounds kind of dark and smooth. When you play it really hard, it gets really clicky, right? So even though that plugin is amazing for evening out a performance, it doesn't really fix the problem of the sound 
being different for the different hits, right? So blending in a sample is a great way to get a more consistent kick or snare sound. Reason number six, to add impact, weight, or excitement to an existing drum recording. I find this especially useful on kick and snare, but it can sometimes come in handy for toms. There are many times when what I really need is just a harder hitting kick drum or a deep subby floor tom or a really metallic, aggressive, clanky snare. This is a similar reason to number four where I talked about changing the character of the drum, but in this case, I'm doing it because I kind of want to particularly alter the character of the direct sound because it's not really doing it for me completely. I need something. I need it to have more weight or more impact or more aggression, more mids, more bite. Uh, sometimes these samples can sound really similar to the live drums, but other times they sound nothing like the live drums at all. For example, if I'm doing something that's kind of poppy, maybe I'm blending in an 808 sample underneath a live kick drum to make it sound more hybrid or electronic. Or using a sample of a brush snare underneath a you know, recording of a snare played with a stick to give the drum some more length and like whoosh you know, some some wash underneath, or using a sample of a trash can lid to make a snare sound more aggressive and punchy and smacky and metallic. Uh, even adding a heavily EQ'd version of the snare underneath the live snare, like a sample of the same snare, but giving it a massive low end where you don't have to have any bleed. I mean, this is a common way to use samples, right? To, to make the drums sound like hyper real or super impactful or punchy or modern or like strange or interesting or whatever. This is more for the fact of I am wanting to drastically improve or enhance or change the overall sound of the drums. So this is a really common reason for me to use drum samples. And finally, yes, the dreaded reason to use drum samples when the drum recording sucks and the sound needs to be replaced with better sounding recordings. Now, I feel like a lot of people out there think this is the most common reason to use drum samples, but at least for me, this is the least common reason for me to use drum samples. Because at least in my world, where you know I do this professionally, I have a studio, I have lots of gear, I have lots of experience recording drums, I'm not trying to brag, but I generally don't have that problem. I generally have pretty good sounding drums. Now, that being said, there are still situations where I run into a problem. For example, maybe the drummer insisted on using their kick drum because they were comfortable with it or for whatever reason they just really wanted to. I've had it happen where drummers are endorsed by a certain company and they just feel like they have to use a certain kick drum because of their endorsement, but that kick drum might just sound terrible. And I hate that, but it's the reality. Maybe the drummer hit the toms so hard that they were just completely falling out of tune within the first 10 seconds of the song, but the performance was really good and it wasn't necessarily worth redoing it, or maybe it was a live thing. Maybe the snare drum that you thought was the right idea at the time, you know, once you recorded all the other elements, you realized it was kind of a mistake and it was not really the snare for the job, and it's not in the budget to redo the drums. There are lots of things that can go wrong, no matter how good you are, no matter how much experience you have with recording drums. So even though we try to operate under the, you know, the source is king model, uh, we're still human beings, right? We don't always knock it out of the park. We're human, right? Like, no engineer or producer is flawless. So yes, even though replacing is a last resort for me, it is something that I have to do every now and then. Uh, and for many of you that maybe struggle to record drums or don't have a lot of gear or aren't in a good room or don't have a lot of different drums, you can use samples to replace or 
you know, almost fully replace the individual drums. So the next topic I want to talk about is how do I use drum samples in my session? And I'm talking about specifically, how do I integrate drum samples into my sessions? Now, there are quite a few ways to integrate drum samples into your workflow, but in my opinion, the best, fastest, easiest way to do so is by using triggering software like Slate Trigger or Drumagog, among many others. These are plugins that will detect the input signal and trigger samples at corresponding velocities or volumes. For example, if your input signal is a snare and it comes in between negative 24 and negative 36 for the peak, it will play back sample A for every hit detected in that velocity range. If it hits between negative 18 and negative 24, it will play sample B. Between negative 10 and negative 18, sample C, so on and so forth. These samples are short audio files recorded at different volumes, so played at different volumes. Maybe the drummer plays a soft hit, a medium hit, a loud hit, and then a really loud hit. They're chopped up, they're edited, and they're put into folders, and then your trigger software, you can go browse on your computer, and you can manipulate them in lots of different ways, but uh, if done well, these can sound very, very real, much more than a single hit or a single velocity of a sample, which is something that we call one-shots, okay? Multi-velocity samples, especially multi-layer, multi-mic, multi-velocity samples are generally much more expensive, and if you're making them yourself, it takes a lot longer to do. But, like I said, they can sound much more convincing, much more real. But we're going to get into a little bit of that process later. Now, in my sessions, I almost always use Slate Trigger, and I always use it on an aux track. Okay, what some of you might call an effects track or an effects return or something like that. So, for example, my kick in and out mics will go to a kick group. And then from that group, I will create a new send to an aux track or an effects track with Slate Trigger as insert one. This is at 100% wet. I'm going to set the send on my kick group to 0.0 dB, and I do it pre-fader. I do not want the level of my kick group fader to alter the input sensitivity of my trigger track, because it will mess it all up, right? So I set it pre-fader so it is a fixed level no matter where the fader on my kick group is. Now, the kick sample track is an aux track or an effects track that goes to my drum bus, just like any other drum track would, and I really just treat it as if it's another mic in the mix. If need be, I would do the same thing for snare and toms. Snare top and bottom go to a group. I'm going to make a send from the group to an aux with trigger on it, and then I route that aux to my drum bus. Because it's on an aux track, I can EQ it, distort it, put reverb on it, do whatever I need to, and it's totally independent of the live snare sound. And every now and then, I will make a snare all or kick all bus, where I route my kick group and my kick sample to a single bus, like if I want to compress them together, for example. And then the kick all bus will go to the drums or the snare all bus. Okay, so that's just kind of my general routing. Now, in some rare cases, it is better to actually drag and drop samples onto an audio track and line them up with the actual snare or kick. Now, there are some tricks and techniques and macros, especially in Cubase and Nuendo, that can make this actually quite quick, but it's still exponentially more time consuming than using a plugin for triggering. It can be, however, more predictable, and it's not subject to the input sensitivity and detection of a plugin, which, as we all know, is not always perfect. 
But personally, I'd rather just manipulate and automate the plugin to make sure that it triggers things accurately. You know, this episode is about the basics of samples, not fine-tuning or advanced techniques of getting samples to sound perfect, but I think you get the idea. And one more thing I'd like to clarify, the aux track or the effects track that I use for the sample is always stereo. I never do a mono sample track. And that's because a lot of times when I'm using samples, I'm wanting to get more room sound or whatever. Even if the samples are mono, they'll play back fine on a stereo track. But if they're stereo samples, they will not play back stereo on a mono track, right? So that also allows me to put reverb on the track and it will add stereo reverb even if it's a mono sample. You know, so I highly recommend doing it this way. It's doing a stereo aux track or an effects track, whatever you call it in your DAW, and routing it from the group or from the individual drums pre-fader at 0.0 dB. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is how much can you really get away with? You know, I don't want my drums to sound fake. How can I make my drum samples sound more real? Now, one thing I'd like to be clear on, getting used to drum samples and using drum samples, it takes time and patience. It's a skill. It's a, it's a technique, right? It's not always easy. You have to be careful. You have to be patient. And you need practice, okay? Not only that, but you also need samples. Lots and lots of samples, okay? In my drum library, I just checked, and I, I have over 20,000 files in that folder, Okay, so now that's not necessarily individual samples. It could be multiple mics or multiple velocities. So one snare might have 20, 40, 60 samples sometimes. But still, over 20,000 files, different drum recordings in that sample folder. That's kicks, snares, toms, cymbals, claps, snaps, stomps, all kinds of stuff, right? There are tons of companies out there making great samples. Soundforge, Slate, Circles, Cult, That Sound... Get Good Drums, and of course there's uh, Splice, which is just a massive database of samples that you can access via a subscription. Now for me, generally speaking, the best sounding and most useful samples are high quality, multi-velocity, multi-layer samples recorded and mixed by professional engineers, played by professional drummers who know how to hit on great drums in great rooms. It has the whole package, right? It's got great source sounds that aren't super highly manipulated, great room sounds, and of course, the mixing is great. Now, the main reason, in my opinion, why people associate drum samples with that sort of fake, plasticky computer drum sound is because a lot of engineers are lazy and cheap, and they don't want to take the time or spend the money to get really great multi-velocity drum samples uh, nor, they, nor do they want to make their own or learn how to make their own. So they end up using a single okay kick drum sample or something, and they fully replace a crappy drum recording with a single one shot that has no dynamics whatsoever. And it basically is like playing live cymbals over an electronic drum kit or something. And even that is not even fair because electronic drum kits have gotten better too. I mean, in my opinion, in modern times, it's pretty primitive to use a one-shot sample and fully replace something with it. There are good reasons to use a one-shot as a blend, right? We talked about earlier trying to even out the performance of a kick drum or a snare. Using a one-shot sample makes a lot of sense there. But to fully replace the kick drum with a single-velocity hit probably going to sound fake. It's probably going to sound like that, you know, perfect, clicky metal kick drum thing. And 
again, even though we say that sounds fake, uh, I mean, is that not the genre? Is that not part of the sound to a certain degree? Is that really so bad? You know, that's hard for me to make the call on. You know, I don't like it necessarily. I think that you can get better drum sounds and better drum samples and blend rather than fully replace and get a more interesting recording, even in metal, even when fully replacing the kick is probably the most common thing to do, right? But when you A-B back and forth, it just, it's kind of no contest in my opinion. Now, another reason that drum samples seem to sound fake is when they're over-processed or over-mixed. To me, that kind of misses the point because they're going to be used in my session, right? And if I put them on an aux and then run them to my drum bus, which then runs to my master bus, they're already going to get mixed and processed in my mix. I don't need them to be hyper-mixed and processed right out of the gate because I'm going to use them with my drums, which are currently not mixed, right? Like, I just need them to sound good and be somewhat processed. I don't want to have to do a lot to make them sound good, but I also don't want it to sound like this super overprocessed, hyped, pre-mixed sound. Because once it runs through all of my stuff, my drum bus, my master bus, it will sound even more processed and hyped. I just need somewhere in the middle. I don't need, like, totally raw, but I don't need overprocessed. Another common problem is when people try to use samples that don't sound anything like the raw drum files. Or perhaps rephrased a different way, when engineers don't even get close to the ideal drum sound with their raw recordings, and then they're trying to blend in a sample that's completely different to magically fix it. Now, that's not the same as blending in a very different sample for creative reasons. That's a different thing. And when you try to do it to fully replace because your recording was totally wrong, a lot of times that sounds bad. It sounds fake. If you recorded with a really fat snare, you probably should be using a fat snare sample. If you recorded with a high-pitched, ringy, cracking snare, you probably need to use a high-pitched, ringy, cracky snare sample. You know, remember that, like, the snare is going to be in basically every microphone, not just the close mics. So don't expect samples to work miracles, right? Like, if you want samples to sound real and natural like they belong, then the raw recording needs to be as close as you feasibly can and then just augment it with samples and replace only when necessary. Yet another problem is when you have a mediocre drummer that comes in with mediocre technique. That means that your raw tracks are not going to have great transients, great punch, and for triggering software to trigger samples correctly, you need to have good, clear transients that can tell the plugin, hey, here's a snare hit and this is how loud it is. It can be really difficult to trigger samples if the source sound is really bad, okay? And that can not only come from the drummer, it can also come from you if you've not recorded it very well. Now, one trick you can do to help this somewhat is if your trigger track is on an aux, then you can put, say, a, a transient designer before trigger to enhance the transient before it goes into trigger. And that can help trigger uh, hear the transient a little bit better, so to speak. It'll improve the accuracy and detection and the sensitivity to make sure it's really detecting the hits. So again, in summary, if you want to make sure that your samples sound real, integrate well and are able to be mixed and kind of blend into their surroundings, you need five main things. Number one, a good source recording played by a good drummer. 
Number two, great sounding samples that at least somewhat match the source. Number three, multi-velocity samples, and even better would be multi-layer multi-velocity samples, meaning there are different hits per velocity and different mics. Very complex, very, you know, probably 60, sometimes more samples per drum, but those are definitely the most real sounding. Number four, samples that aren't overprocessed, and probably most importantly, number five, patience, because one of the big things about using drum samples is it takes time to find the right ones, okay? You sometimes have to go through and audition dozens and dozens of snares. Now, over time, over many years, you start to figure out, okay, these types of snares sound good for this, these types sound good for this, this one doesn't work, so I'm going to delete it, don't even need it anymore because I'm tired of seeing it in my folder, you know what I mean? You start to figure those things out, and it does speed up a little, but it still takes time to go through your drums and find different samples that blend really well with your current live drums. So hopefully those tips will help your drum samples sound more real. Now, next I want to go over a brief explanation of how to make drum samples in a very basic way. I'm not going to get into the super nitty-gritty details of how to make multi-velocity, multi-layer, multi-mic drum samples, but I wanted to give you just a few tips on making drum samples for yourself, particularly if you're happy with the raw drum recordings that you're getting. If you're not happy with the raw recordings, then this might not really apply to you. So anyway, here we go. First step is to set up the mics as you normally would, sound check as you normally would, and tweak until you get the drum sound that you really want, something that you're proud of, that you like, okay? Something that you're basically ready to hit record on, but right before you actually start recording, that's the best time to get drum samples. Stuff is in tune, it's sounding good, the drummer's comfortable, and everything is set up and ready to go. Now, step two. For me, I like to cover all of the drums and cymbals that aren't being used with blankets or towels. So if I'm getting kick samples, I'll cover the cymbals and snare and toms with blankets or towels to prevent them from ringing too much, right? I also always turn off the snare when I'm getting kick and toms. And when I'm done with the kick, I'll uncover the rack tom. And when I'm done with the rack tom, I'll uncover the floor tom and recover the rack tom, right? So I just go down the line and only uncover the one thing that I am currently sampling, okay? So I don't just like add all of them along with it and let everything just ring along. I try to get a fairly clean, isolated sound. That seems to work better than just hitting a snare drum and letting everything, you know, let the cymbals go shh and let the toms go mm. That's annoying to me, okay? That's the type of stuff that I don't want in my snare sample. Because, again, the snare is not just in the snare mics. It's in the overheads and the rooms. And if you have toms or cymbals ringing along in your overhead mics or your room mics, if you want to highly compress or distort those, you're going to hear all that ugly ring from other stuff. So in my opinion, it's best to cover all the others. Now, if you want to take that one step further, you can actually just take all of that stuff out of the room. But if you're working with a client, you know, that's a time waste, right? They've already set it up exactly how they have it. Uh, then maybe you shouldn't do that. Just cover it. But if you're doing samples on your own, you can just set up one drum and you'd have even more isolated sounds. But yeah, if there's a client in the room and you're going to get drum samples on their kit, well, just cover them and sample things one at a time. Next step. Um, in terms of the actual drum sample process itself, you want to make sure that whoever's playing the drums knows the process and can actually hit well. A lot of producers and engineers think they know how to strike a drum and produce a good tone, but they actually don't. 
There is a finesse to stick technique and getting a drum to speak and sing correctly. So make sure that whoever is hitting the drums actually is someone that knows how to hit. So what is the method for getting drum samples? How many hits do you get? Well, that's going to be different for everyone. Some people will just get like one good hit. Other people will get three hits like soft, medium, hard. If you're trying to extensively sample a drum that's multi-velocity multi and multi-layer, I mean, you can go crazy with it. You can do 16 velocities with four hits per velocity. And when used in the right software, you can make these great dynamic drum samples that will trigger at different velocity layers, right? But this process is a lot more complicated than I'm making it sound. It's, it's very difficult to do it really correctly. It takes a long time. So I know I'm kind of oversimplifying this, but in general, I'd say... If you're just trying to get some basic samples to use as backup just in case you need them, it's probably a safe bet to get at least eight hits on a drum. So maybe like two quiet, two medium, two hard, and two very hard hits or something like that. Maybe it's just a gradual series like, you know, bump, 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 like all the way up from quiet to loud, right? The point is to have a few different options to play with at different volumes uh, so you can pick the best sounding ones, but also so you can have the ability to make a build or a roll and make it sound natural. If you just have one snare hit, that's where you're gonna get a really fake sounding roll, right? This like, if you're trying to do like, you know, hit like that and it's all one sample, it's gonna sound super fake. So keep that in mind, try to have extra hits at each velocity, that would be even better. So if the drummer, for example, is a metal drummer and they're mostly playing hard, right? Like they're not really playing much quiet snare work or kick work or whatever, then at least try to get four, maybe eight hits that are all hard hits, right? At least then you'd have some slight variation that you could blend in and they wouldn't sound like all the exact same hit triggered eight times. Okay, next step is make sure to be as quiet as possible as the drums are decaying and make sure that the drums decay for probably a little bit longer than you think. Like a snare drum might need three, four, five seconds to decay. Don't just go bop, 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 right? Like let each one fully decay. Now this can take actually quite a while for toms and cymbals. So, and for ringy snare drums and stuff. So make sure to budget the time for it in your session. You know, it can take 10, 20, 30 minutes to, to, to sample a kit fully. Uh, so just make sure that you're budgeting time for that. Now the next step is once you've recorded all the samples, you need to edit them. So you zoom way into the waveforms and you edit from the closest mics that you have because of the speed of sound and you edit them to the very start of the waveform, right? Just you zoom way up on the waveform and you do right to the very start of the waveform. So you cut right there and you do a tiny little fade so that there's no pop or click. And then usually you're going to also fade the ending of the sample, maybe a longer fade, like a second. Now, depending on how you want to do it, you may just export the raw mics individually or you might want to pre-mix everything and get like your, you know, snare and overheads and rooms and make a blend and then that's your snare sample and then a different blend is another snare sample. The, the options there are kind of endless. Uh, that's really up to you. Like I said, I'm just trying to give you kind of general advice, a general overview here. There are so many ways that you can do that. You can process things a lot. You can do them raw. You can render individual mics or render just a blend. Regardless, once you have processed the samples how you want to, you render them out to WAV files and you put them in a folder on your computer, uh, preferably organized <laughs> with your other samples, and you can now load them into various sampling software for use in your sessions. 
Now, there are a lot of videos on YouTube and articles and things about how to make your own drum samples. I know this was a very quick overview, but some people out there maybe have never even tried to make drum samples before. So I just wanted to introduce you to the topic. If you want more info on this, I would highly recommend go check out some more extensive videos on the topic. So next, I thought it would be really helpful to have some actual audio examples demonstrating each of the situations that I described earlier in which I might use a sample. Now, before we begin, I've got to preach about something really quick. Um, out of respect for the creators of these samples, I'm not going to be playing you the samples in solo. I will be playing them with my drums. I'll play you my drums in solo, and then I'll blend in the samples. But, you know, in effect, like anyone listening to this episode could just resample the samples from these people and not have to pay for them. Now, I'll play it for you if it's something that I've made, but if it's something that is from somebody else, I won't play them in solo. That, to me, is not right. I know personally how long it can take to record, edit, mix, and produce samples for people to buy, and these people have worked hard for it. They deserve to be paid for it, just like we as musicians deserve to be fairly paid for our music, right? None of us want people to use our music without permission or steal our music or ask us to gig for free or put our song in a movie and not pay us anything, right? The same goes for plugins. The same goes for samples. Like, I know many of you out there are probably using some cracked plugins that you didn't pay for. And I've just got to say, like, it's wrong. You know, believe me, I, there was a time early on in my career where I did it too. And I'm not proud of it. Okay, I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed that I use cracked software. But many people do it. And it's, you know, it's like a similar feeling to how we feel about downloading music back in the late 90s. Back then it was like, oh, this is no big deal. And then one day it's like you realize, oh, I'm stealing from artists. This is illegal, isn't it? Like it's not technically illegal, but it is actually. (laughs) Uh, You know, illegal downloading is what led to the crash of the music industry, basically. And it's something we're still not really fully recovered from. And it's kind of what led to our situation today. That one seemingly innocent habit that so many of us had caused irreparable damage to the music industry. And it, like I said, still hasn't fully recovered 22, 23 years later. So if we call ourselves artists and we want to support creators and other people making good stuff, and we want to be supported and paid fairly for our work, then we need to do the same for these creators, okay? No matter what they're creating, software, music, art, whatever it may be. So if you want to hear the samples in solo, buy them, okay? (laughs) Rant over. So the first example I want to talk about is using samples to get more reverb. Like I said, this is a very natural way of getting more room sound on a snare by blending in a roomy snare sample that is similar to the snare that you're using. So in this example, we've got great sounding drums. Here are the drums without samples. And this is blending in a roomy snare sample, also going through the drum bus, through the normal processing, everything else, but just enhancing the reverb on that snare. I'll A-B between them so you can hear the difference in real time. So here's a bar of each. So 
you can hear that that room sample is pretty processed. It's thick. It's mid-rangey. It's kind of dark compared to the main snare, and it's real wide. But this really helps enhance the snare sound. It gives it a lot of energy, excitement, and makes it sound like it's in a bigger room without trying to use a reverb plugin. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but on to the next example. So another thing we talked about is using a sample to get more length out of a drum. So when you've got a kick drum that was played very short, but you need some more length out of it, that's the case in this example. So check out the drums with no sample on the kick. So these drums are cool, but it's a slow song, it's a slow tempo, and I wanted to give more length to the kick drum, but it wasn't there in the recording, so I blended in a close mic sample of a large, boomy, almost orchestral kind of bass drum. Check it out. And again, I will A, B between them, one bar each, so you can hear what it's doing. And yes, this is a pretty subtle effect in a mix, but it does make a difference. It adds a little more character, it helps the groove, it extends the length of that kick drum, and it really completes the part, in my opinion, like it makes it make sense with the long floor tom and the reverb on the snare and all of that. Okay, another way that we use samples is to reduce bleed, and this is usually best done with a sample of the exact snare or tom or kick that you were using. Okay, that's going to sound the most natural, so... Here's an example of just a soloed snare track on like a metal song that I recorded the drums for. And the bleed isn't terrible, but it's definitely problematic, especially once blended in with the mix, once there's drum bus compression and master bus compression. So what we did is we took samples of the whole kit and we blended them in with the close mic. So it is a close mic sample. No rooms, no overheads. It's just a close mic sample blended in on the close mic track. About 60, 50 to 70%, depending, is, is usually what I find works best. And then you have to compensate a little bit for the dry volume, but check out the difference. If you forgot where we came from, I'm going to A-B the two, and you'll see how big of a difference it is. So we were able to reduce the bleed on the snare by about 6 dB, and not only that, but we helped the snare tone be a little more consistent because we're blending in a single sample of the snare that we used on this track. So you got to be careful with it, you can't do too much but it can really help as an alternative to a gate. So here's the whole drum mix without the sample blended in before.
with So it really focuses that snare and allows us to use more compression or saturation or whatever processing we need to get the right vibe, to mix it the way that we need to mix it, and not have to worry so much about bleed. So the next example is when we want to alter the character of the drums, but we also really like the close mic sounds. So we're trying to blend in some alternate sounds that are not necessarily more reverby or longer or whatever, but maybe they've got more distortion or mid-range or they're EQ'd very aggressively, and we're trying to just blend that in to modify the character of the drums. So in this example, I've got great sounding uh, drums just by themselves. Check it out. So I really like all of these sounds and I wanted to use it, but what I needed to do was enhance the mid-range and aggressiveness of the kick and snare. So I blended in some pretty heavily modified and processed kick and snare samples that are still made from real drums, but they're gated, they're distorted, they're mid-rangey, they're aggressive, and they help add a lot of energy to the kit. Check it out. So one of these definitely has some room on it, but what I'm trying to do is get more mid-range character. I'm trying to get more distortion. I'm trying to get, you know, a little more flavor to help me cut through a wall of guitars, but not lose the original character of the drums. And I think this does that really well. So I will A-B between them again, one bar at a time. Here we go. This is kind of like an Eric Valentine kind of thing. You know, Eric Valentine traditionally will use a lot of mid-range on rock drums when they're trying to compete with a wall of guitars. And in this song, we did have a lot of guitars. And it helped. It really helped to help them cut through this big, just layered guitar sound uh, to give them more ah, you know, when the kick drum hits. So it's not just click only, you know. So again, this is a cool way to blend in some unique character and not ruin the nice sound that you've got on your main drums. It also allows you to automate them throughout the song. So maybe in the chorus you need a little more, or maybe in the verse you need a little less. You get the idea. Yet another way that we use samples is to help even out a performance. So this is kind of something we talked about a little bit earlier, but in this case, we're using a metal track that we need to help even out that kick drum. It's part of the sound of metal at this point to have a really kind of perfect mechanical typewriter kick. Now, this isn't super, super aggressive and processed, but you get the idea of what it's doing. So here's the track with no kick sample. And then we're going to blend in a single velocity, meaning one volume, no dynamics whatsoever, heavily EQ'd, heavily processed kick drum that sounds kind of ready to go. We're going to blend that in with the main kick.
Now, these drums aren't completely mixed, but they sound pretty good as is, and that kick really kind of makes it sound like metal to me, you know? Before, it's just like, okay, these are nice rock drums, but you add that kind of perfect typewriter kick sound, and it's like, well, that's a lot closer <laughs> already, you know, without really having to mix them super heavily yet. So again, I will A-B back and forth. Especially on the double kick sections with really fast kick parts, it's almost essential to have a kick sample blended in. Many metal producers just completely replace the kick because that's part of the sound of the genre. And that's something that a lot of people don't want to admit. They don't want to use samples on principle and they say, oh, you know, well, really good engineers don't need samples. Well, yes and no. I mean, the ideal thing would be we don't need them, but we've used them for so long now, they've become a part of certain genres, right? So there's no shame in using them. And in this case, we're blending in. We're not replacing because the live kick sound is cool. It's just not great. It doesn't really have the exact vibe that we want. So blending in this kind of perfect one volume kick really helps make it sound like a metal kick. Another really common way to use samples is to blend in things that are kind of hyper real or even synthetic to give the drums a more hybrid character something that's really common in pop especially bands that play pop bands like saint lucia or coldplay or things like that that are sort of hybrid band but also pop um, lots of electronic stuff going on so in this example we're blending in some 808 kick drums some other electronic kick samples some uh, more electronic uh, synth snare sounds. We're blending in some gated reverb. We're blending in quite a few things, but you'll hear it makes a huge difference to the vibe of this track. So here is the track without samples. You hear that gated reverb in there. It's cool, but it doesn't quite do the entire thing. And this is with blending in some more electronic, uh, hyper-processed kind of samples to give it that hybrid vibe. Makes a massive difference, right? I'll A-B between them. Another thing you might notice is that the samples are much louder in this example. They're taking up a larger proportion of the drum sound versus some of the metal or country or rock stuff that I've shown so far, where I'm just doing some enhancements, I'm modifying the sound. This is truly like kind of a 50-50, like the samples are almost just as loud as the main drums, if not a little bit louder, because we really want it to have that hyped up, like poppy sound. So it definitely works. You do have to spend quite a bit of time finding the right samples because with synthesized kicks or with electronic samples, it's just endless the types of sounds you can make. 
and sometimes you're blending in real samples, but then processing them heavily. It's really, really infinite. Really, just like any of this stuff, you can kind of go on forever, but I really like how it came out. And yes, finally, we have to show an example of completely replacing a drum with samples. Now, in this example, the drummer had a really cool old Yamaha kit, and everything sounded awesome except the kick drum. It just didn't sound that great. It wasn't terrible, but it just didn't have the volume and the aggression, and he wasn't playing it very hard. So here's the raw kick sound. Again, it's not terrible. It's not the worst kick drum I've ever heard. It just sounded kind of scooped, but then also too much low mid, and it just didn't have the punch that we needed for this track. This was a really like high energy, almost like Bruno Mars kind of thing. And so we needed a really punchy kick drum. So like here's the whole drum mix without the kick sample. And this is with. Much tighter, much punchier, and just sounds like it was played more aggressively. And thankfully, there's not too much tricky kick stuff going on on this song. So in context, there was not really a time when it sounded fake or phony. When you're fully replacing a drum, you really have to be careful to use good, high-quality, and ideally multi-velocity samples to keep it sounding real and have some dynamic life in there. But again, sometimes you have no option but to replace. So one last thing before we call it a day. What about reverb? Okay, longtime fans of the podcast may recall that one of my go-to techniques for drum mixing is to put reverb on the room mics or the overheads or both rather than on close mics. I talked about this earlier in the episode. That's a technique that I've been doing for a decade or more, and it's still something I do all the time. Trying to get a snare or kick close mic to sound good in an algorithmic reverb, even an IR reverb, is just really difficult. It doesn't quite sound that right. I mean, it's not really logical if you think about it. Like, why would we put reverb on a mic that's two inches away from a snare versus just use the mics that are far away from the kit, which is where they would be in a big room? Even if you don't have a stellar room, I still recommend putting up room mics and then trying to put reverb on those because you're then putting reverb on the entire kit at a distance. Um, the idea is basically to pretend that, that those live mics had that room sound on it. And then, of course, because the reverb plugin is on the track, not as a send, it's then getting pushed into the drum bus and kind of pushing and pulling with everything else. Another part of this technique is using compression after the reverb plugin, which helps enhance and lengthen the decay. So if reverb time, also known as RT60, is the time that it takes for a sound to decay 60 dB, then it follows that putting compression after reverb will actually technically lengthen your decay time because it brings up the low-level information. And if, for whatever reason, uh, RT60 or reverb time is a measure of decibels over time, then bringing up those quieter sections will make it take longer to decay 60 dB, right? 
So it's kind of a weird thing, but that's just how we measure reverb time. So you don't always need a super long reverb time on there. You don't always need like a second of reverb or something on your room mics. Sometimes just, you know, 700 milliseconds or so, and then going into compression sounds awesome, right? Compression on room mics has been a thing for decades, decades upon decades. Like it's arguably one of the most common techniques in drum recording across almost every genre you can imagine. It does a lot for the sound. It's not just to extend the reverb time. I mean, it glues together the drums. It pulls out detail and aggression. It lengthens decay and sustain of the drums themselves and of the room. It's a really great technique. So when you do this, you know, with reverb plugins, put the reverb plugin early on the track on your room mic or overheads, and then put compression after the reverb. Otherwise, you're not really simulating how it would have been done in a big room, right? Like if you put mics 20 feet away from a kit in a big room, they would have that, quote, reverb on them, and then you would compress those room mics, right? So if you want it to sound like how they would sound in a big room, that's how you have to do it. Very often, I'm using a combination of samples and this reverb technique to get the right drum ambience. Sometimes I'm using a lot of the room and the little sample. Sometimes I'm using more sample and a little bit of room. Sometimes sometimes no room, sometimes no sample. You know, maybe I've even got a little bit of reverb on the snare sample, right? Maybe I've got a kick sample blended in that has mostly room mic on it, but no reverb plugin, right? There's an endless combination of ways to do this. So, in summary of today's episode, drum samples are amazing tools. They've been used in music for decades. You know, this is not new technology. And just like most things in audio, you have to actually have skills to make them work. You have to continually develop those skills to improve the results. You can't just buy Slate Trigger and suddenly your mixes will sound amazing. It's not that simple. It takes time, it takes patience, and a good ear to really make samples work well for you without sounding phony, without sounding mechanical. It takes some forethought, some planning, and it also takes a pretty robust library of samples to choose from. But hopefully this episode has given you the confidence to try it out and see if it can improve your workflow and your drum sounds. So as always, thanks for listening to this episode. Check out recordingloungepodcast.com. There's a resources page. There's a contact uh, page if you need to get in contact with me. If you have suggestions for episode topics, that's one of the best ways that I can get new material to make new episodes. So please send me your suggestions on episode topics. Also, make sure you check out trumanaudio.com and use coupon code RL10, that's the number 10, at checkout to get 10% off your order. That is a temporary coupon code, so use it while you can. Also, special thanks to my Patreon supporters. It's one of the best ways to support the podcast and ensure that this can keep going. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash recording lounge, become a member, and you can get special access to our quick tip feed, which is another kind of series of mini podcasts that are, you know, five or 10 minutes that have little short quick tips that aren't long enough for me to really make a full recording lounge episode. So that's great for sort of other miscellaneous tips that are still really useful, just quick. So make sure to check that out. Also make sure to check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash recording lounge. And again, if you have any suggestions for videos that you'd like me to make, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. And I will talk to you next time. See ya.